Hello, everybody. Just a very quick one about Instagram. If you're on it, Meta, the parent company, is reducing the number of political posts visible to users on their feed. This is a real thing, not a hoax. So go to your Instagram profile, tap the three horizontal lines in the top right corner to open the settings tab, scroll down to what you see, click on content preferences, open political content, and turn on don't limit political content. That's an option. Otherwise, you won't see almost anything we post because we are deemed political. Please do that now or you won't even see the posts about our shows, our fun things. So if you want to see Guilty Feminist content and know when we're coming to a place near you, releasing a new podcast, do it now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to part two of The Guilty Feminist. So plug in. Get ready for the fun. Hello, Perth. Are you ready for the second half of The Guilty Feminist? Then please welcome back to the stage Deborah Francis White and Geraldine Hickey. It's the race to get back to the seats before the music stops. It's like musical chairs. I never quite do it. Now, Geraldine Hickey, can I ask you a question? Yeah, of course. Um, Our guests tonight Mm -hmm. are science people. Oh, yep. Not to put too fine a point on it. Um, Very clever science people doing very clever, important science work. Mm -hmm. Am I a scientist? (sighs) Yes. How, how, when you were at school, did you like science? Were you frightened of science? Do you know what? I did love science, and in year eight, I joined the um, science club, and like we'd go in at lunchtime once a week, but I kept it s- secret. Secret? Yeah. From whom? From just the, everybody, like just what, everyone that wasn't in science, science club. club. I was in because ba- I thought it was too nerdy. Oh, so if someone saw you going into science club, what excuse would you make? Yeah, oh, I'm just I'd be to like, smoke oh, I'm just the... yeah, I don't know, I'm just going to science club. But we did fun experiments, like what? Um, like when you put blue tack on a biro lid and make it and put it in a bottle of water and squeeze it and it goes up or something. I didn't. I, didn't. I feel like Siva will be able to tell us the experiment you're talking about. Siva, do you know what she's talking about? I'm in year six. I have no idea. Oh yeah. Siva said she, I'm in year six. Wait till so you I'm get to year it. eight. Woo, fun. <laughs> It's but also, um, I 
wasn't the best at science and I didn't do the best at school. What In a science assignment we had, we had to write a, like a one-page um, report on like Albert Einstein. Yeah. And I hadn't done it and then like the teacher was like, you have to, and I lied and said, oh, you know, I've nearly, I've done half of it. She goes, just finish it. And then um, I handed her a piece of paper that was, I'd wrote out the um, the plot to young Einstein. <laughs> With Yahoo Serious yeah. as the lead. Now, yeah. if you're listening internationally, you may not know this. This is an Australian film. Yeah. That is indescribable. Like, it's no, so bizarre. I, I can describe it in a one-page <laughs> report. But that's when I learnt that that wasn't based on a true story. No, it's absolutely absurd, surreal, ridiculous, nothing like... Yeah. But young movie. Einstein, he lived in Tassie and he put bubbles in beer. That's right, that's yeah. right. And it was just this completely off-the-wall, fictitious, ludicrous... And it was as if, yeah. like, Einstein was Australian. Yeah, he lived, yeah, lived in Tassie and then he invented the, the electric guitar. That's right! Yeah. And the, the lead actor was a man who was very popular at the time called Yahoo Sirius. I suspect Yahoo Sirius is... Well, is he still yeah. working? No, I think he's just putting bubbles in beer. <laughs> So that's your science background. I must admit, at school, I, I loved, like, languages, creativity, anything, you know, creative writing. I'd always win prizes and things like that. Science, I just was so poor at it. And I don't know why. I don't know if my brain... If it, where I think, this is my guess, in year eight, mm. I had a teacher who was extremely uninspiring. Oh. And made everything very boring. Yeah. She'd say, shall we say, three times in every sentence. So she'd say, so we put the, uh, I don't know, this is me now. This is me now having to make up science talk. So we put the fluid in the, shall we say, beaker. And then we, shall we say, place it on the counter. And then shall we say, we light the Bunsen burner. And then shall we say, we see the reaction. Now, those things, I grant you, would not lead to anything scientific happening. Uh, but that, it was so tedious. And I remember, like, falling asleep. And I think once you get behind in something, mm. it's very difficult. Also, like, I remember having to dissect things and oh, finding yeah. that very upsetting. And I just don't think it was for me. But now I kind of regret it because I feel like it would be really good to know how the world works. Yeah, handy. <laughs> Well, our guests are going to they know stuff. that, Geraldine Hickey. Yeah. And before we bring them on, I, I did promise this incredible audience, you've been one of the finest audiences of your generation, in my opinion. I think, that, yeah. That first half, there were so many gear changes in that first half mm -hmm. from extremely, like, I was crying laughing watching your IKEA routine. And then some just beautiful poetry, that second poem like mm. had me again crying but for different reasons and then like a quite a serious discussion and then you know then grace comes out and does that ikea song what breaking my heart into and i just didn't feel like you just were with us all the way like there was no point at which i saw you go oh that was a sharp turn you just went yeah this is exactly where it should yeah. be going um 
I did promise you, though, because we had our acts of sort of, you know, unintimidating feminism, although I, Perth, your bar is high. I don't think it was... I don't... I mean, this is how we met Siva. Yeah. yeah. So the bar, was, the bar was high. But I did say, if anyone has an act of feminism or something going on in Western Australia that they would like to share with us that you might need help with, um, please speak now. Has anyone got anything? Or just something you want to share with us. Tell us about that you're proud of. Yes, I can, there's a waiver. I can bring you a microphone. Oh, there's a microphone here. Oh, great. Excellent. Hello. Yes, what's I didn't your need name? to bring mine, but. Hello, my name's Janelle Saul. I just went to a local government event and I just found out that there is only one in three women in local government. <gasps> a travesty. One in three. One in three. Wow. So we need many of you at the next local government election, which is next year, so you've got loads of time to So get is that like council? Council. Why are you going away, Geraldine? Oh, because... <laughs> so like, I keep sort of trying well, to even myself up with No, you. but I'm the sorry, because I just wanted to get that around. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. no, I see. I thought you were backing away yeah, from yeah, running um, for local government. Here I am. I thought, no, she's um, like, I don't want to do this. No. I don't want to be on a council. So, sorry. are you going to run? Uh, Janelle? I am one, but I need, I need all of you to help me because it's really hard. Are you already in local government? Yeah. Are you already? You've done it? Yeah, I've done that, but I want to take all of you okay. with me okay. on this journey. How do people do that? Okay, so they are literally, like, a, like about a month before, they need to actually register online. Um, I'm really happy to help. Okay, what, do, would you have an email you'd be prepared to share or something like that, a way of people getting in touch with you? Uh, yes, yes, I do. I, I mean, you don't have to just give your main email out. Have you got a, an email especially for this? Uh, I do, yeah. So if you go on to the Australian Local Government Women's Association... Oh, yeah, that's good. So think what? <laughs> so think Wawa. Yeah. So Wawa, so women, yeah. Yeah, then... Okay then you, you can we get on board and we will mentor you. We launched the MentorNet program tonight. I literally did it five minutes before. What? Okay. All right. What kind of... Janelle, what kind of commitment is it? Can you have your full-time job as well? Well, you kind of have to to survive financially. Right. But so how many like, hours a month would they have to commit to this? Quite a lot. <laughs> I'm trying to sell it, Janelle. Yeah. Play it down lie that's what politics is you sh you're terrible at politics you're telling the truth sell so your social life will be entirely made up of local government events but it's really fun uh, but oh Janelle Janelle uh, sorry I have a question these events do they have catering Amazing catering. There you go. And, pre Tick. and Prosecco. Well. Lots of Prosecco. Wow. Tick. So that's where your tax dollars are going. <laughs> no, to, the, to the seafood platters and Prosecco of the big fat cats of local government. <laughs> I'm kidding, Janelle. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, so uh, just give us a cheer if you, would, if you could see yourself, even just as a civic duty, a feminist duty... Just even doing a term or two in local government. Just give us a... Yes! Okay. Yeah. All right. So you're going to... Joining the Mentors Program doesn't commit you to anything. Mentornet. Google Mentornet. Mentornet. 
You, you are not committed to anything. You're just putting your toe in the water. But unless there's no good going, oh, we're not represented, oh, there's not enough women in power, blah, 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 if you're not going to step forward. And also, there's people here you know who should do it, and you know that they should, but they're not here. So you might need to tell them, go into the WhatsApp group and go, I think you should do this. In America, they have a thing called She Should Run. And, uh, you know, where you just say, I just think you'd be great. So if you know anyone or you think I could be that person then get involved. That sounds absolutely incredible. Big round of applause for Janelle. Um, and can I say as well, I was asking Charmaine at the back how we could support her mm -hmm. because she told me that the, some of the work that she does is for children and teens with suicide. And I was like, how do we give money for this? Because she said, you know, that it's all our culture that can solve these problems. But we're not given f enough funding. We're having to fight for funding in order to, you know, be able to structure those programs. So you can give money... Um, Western Australian Centre for Rural Health. You just go again and Google that and you can donate money. I really feel as if you are a, a white or non-Indigenous Western Australian, you should probably set up a direct debit. <laughs> Honestly, not to put too fine a point on it, but you're living on, you're living on stolen land. <laughs> and one way that you can carbon offset that guilt is... And whatever you can afford, and if you can't afford anything, then find the richest person in one of your WhatsApp groups and tell them they have to do it. Hello, Guilty Feminist, this is Deborah. The next thing you'll hear is my conversation on stage in Perth with two amazing women who are absolute experts in their fields. I could have talked to both of them for hours, but when it came to my conversation with paediatrician Michelle Telfer, I felt we'd really only scratched the surface. So when I was back in London, I got on a Zoom with Michelle to dig deeper and clarify some of the issues she'd raised. You'll hear that interview after my onstage chat with both Michelle and Kat, which is coming up right now. Are we ready for our guests, Geraldine? Yes, I am. Let's do it. Okay. Our first guest <clears throat> is an associate professor, a paediatrician and adolescent medicine physician. She is currently the director of the Department of Adolescent Medicine at the Royal Children's Hospital, Melbourne. She is also the director of the RCH Gender Service, being instrumental in the development and expansion of the clinical and research programs with rising demand for trans medicine in children and adolescents. As an advocate for improved access to medical treatment, Michelle was central to the achievement of federal legal reform for trans and gender diverse young people. She was awarded the 2017 Globe Community Award for LGBTI Ally of the Year. In 2015 and 2018, the RCH Gender Service was awarded the Minister for Mental Health's Award for Excellence in Consumer Leadership and Advocacy at the Victorian Public Health Care Awards. The rest of her bio is so long, if I read it out, you'd think she was dead and this was an obit. <laughs> and there'd be black and white coming up, you know, video. Um, but listen, if you're thinking to yourself, gosh, she sounds like she's better than me and always will be, uh, intimidatingly, you know, extraordinary, she was also an Olympic gymnast. <laughs> uh, she went to Barcelona in 92, yeah. Um, and she won silver and bronze medals at the 1990 Commonwealth Games in Auckland. So I'm kind of hoping that we get some sort of backflips as well. Um, please welcome to the stage, Michelle Telfer. 
Michelle, come. Welcome, welcome. Take a seat. And what a beautiful gown you're wearing as well. Uh, joining us tonight also is uh, an astrophysics PhD candidate at Curtin University with the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research. You already saw her in the I'm a Feminist Butts. She studies baby black holes that are behaving unexpectedly. See, I wouldn't know what to expect, Geraldine. I wouldn't know what I was looking for. I'd be like, is that unexpected from a baby black hole? I, I reckon if you watch it long enough, you'd go, oh, that's different. Well, I think that's what she does. Yeah. But I don't know if I'd be like watching a baby black hole. Well, I would think, was, is that the action of a more mature baby black, black hole? Yeah. I don't is know. It, is it growing up? black hole. Yeah. You know, a, a pensioned black hole. I don't know. Mm. Anyway, some baby black holes behave unexpectedly, and she studies that. And she also monitors twinkling galaxies. Which, funnily enough, is the name of a gay club I went to on Fire Island. Oh. She has worked in determining the dark matter content of distant galaxies, modelling the dusty shells surrounding red giant stars, and combined ten different telescopes across three countries to image the tiny burps from supermassive black holes. Burps. I suspect she's made this up. <laughs> and gone, tell her to read that out. <laughs> she, she, now she's sorry she didn't listen in science. Should have taken it past grade eight. Kat is a science communicator and is the Sydney Observatory Astronomy Ambassador. She is proudly bisexual and genderqueer and an activist to help make safe spaces for LGBTQ play, LGBTQIA plus people and gender minorities in science. She is the founder of the hashtag Include a Movement. Founder of the Include Her Movement. So that's Include Her. A national campaign that seeks to correct high school courses that overlook the contributions of women in science and increase the diversity of scientists taught in classrooms. Please welcome to the stage, Kat Ross! <laughs> and you both look extraordinary. Like, just, if you're listening at home, Kat is wearing what can only be described as astrophysical dungarees. This, this little old thing, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I just, I wanted to make sure that everyone knew that I was the astronomer, you know? <laughs> just wanted it's to make it really clear. Incredibly clear. Well, do you know what? The thing with Michelle is, when I read her bio before I met her, it said she was an adolescent medicine physician. And I thought, oh my God, it's like Doogie Howser. <laughs> But it turned out she herself is not an adolescent, although she has excellent skin tone. <laughs> Just made my day, Deborah. Um, I'm a feminist, but... <laughs> now, I'm, I, I want to kind of get into it because um, we're going to, you know, at some point the concert hall will force us to leave. Um, I want to ask you, Michelle, you've been leading Australia's largest clinical service for trans and gender diverse children and adolescents for 10 years. What has changed in that time? What changes have you seen? I think the greatest change has been in the number of young people that are coming forward asking for our help. So when I started in 2012, that year we had 18 new referrals, so one eight. And it was kind of a niche area of adolescent medicine and, and quite new to me, obviously. By last year, we had 821 new referrals in just 12 months. I think there's a, a direct correlation between the acceptance and the visibility of trans people in our community 
and young people feeling safe to come forward and feeling safe to express who they are and to ask for what they need to be there. Do older trans people ever say to you, I wish that had been there for me? That is the most common uh, piece of correspondence I get is from older trans people saying, and it always tears me up, I feel quite emotional just thinking about it, but I've got all these handwritten letters and often, you know, when older people write to you and they have their beautiful handwriting and it comes in the mail, it's like really special just in itself, but sometimes those messages say, I wish that there was someone like you when I was a child and that just keeps me going Mm. the whole time. How did you end up working in this area in in the first place? So I took the job as uh, the clinical lead in adolescent medicine at the Royal Children's Hospital in a full-time role where I was responsible for all the the clinical programs. And there was, it was an unusual time at the Children's where um, one of the endocrinologists who was solely responsible for the medical care of um, a a very small group of trans young people, probably 10 or 15 of them, and he, he retired. And there just wasn't someone within his team or within the, the wider hospital at that stage who wanted to take over the care of these young people. So because I just started this new role, uh, they approached me and said, you know, how would you feel about um, taking over these, uh, these young people's care? And I didn't really know very much at that stage, but I, of course, you know, thought something, um, something new and, and um, I'll give it a go. And one of the first young people I ever saw was this beautiful uh, young boy uh, who hadn't yet started puberty and his name was, um, was Oliver. And Ollie's spoken about this publicly so I don't feel like I'm breaching any confidentiality or anything. But I asked Ollie, I said, help me understand what it's like being a trans kid. And he said, well, the first time I... Th- I remember thinking about it was when I was having uh, my birthday and I was about four and I had to make a wish as I blew out the candles on my birthday cake and I blew out the candles and I thought, I wish my body was a boy's body. He said, that's my, one of my earliest memories. And he said, I'm 10 now and every single birthday and every time I have to make a wish, I just wish that my body was more like who I am. And who could turn that kind of work away, you know? And I just thought, I'm hooked. This is what I'm going to be doing for the rest of my career. And some people might be listening and going, shouldn't we be helping children realise that whatever body they have is wonderful and they don't need to change their body to identify how they want to identify and they don't need to, uh, you know, they don't. that's not something they need to do. Like... When a child comes to you, what's the first thing you do? Like, how do you speak to them? I think the first thing that we do is listen and then we listen again and we listen some more. Um, And the other things that are really important in taking care of trans young people is that you don't just listen, but you empathise and you go about it in a really non-judgmental way. So you really hear what they're saying and then you respond to what they need. And it's true that many young people who may identify as trans or gender diverse don't feel the need to change their body. But for many, the distress is so acute and and so um, intense and and, uh, disruptive to them leading a normal life 
for, for them. It just stops them doing reaching their potential and, and doing what they, they want and they love. That you, you can see that, um, and they're, they're, they're asking and, and almost begging sometimes that they want you to help them change their body so that there's that congruence so that they can live their life in this really full and meaningful way for them. And this is the thing is that we as cisgender people have this privilege where we can say, oh, but surely you can just feel this way and say, but this is how I feel. And for them, hearing what they're trying to say, really listening, and then we have this uh, power as, as doctors and medical professionals to actually enable them to live this life. And I think, you know, that's, a, that's, a, that's where the privilege for me comes in and I think if I can enable this, um, that's what I need to do. One thing that surprised me that you told me backstage was that um, for most children, you're, you are listening and then there's no medicine, there's no puberty blockers, there's no... There's, it's actually a very small percentage of the population that's trans, about 3%, and then of that, a very small number do anything medical at all, and then and a much smaller percentage of that do anything medical in their teens, in their pre-adolescence or in their adolescence, and that really surprised me. A lot of what you're doing is just is just talking. I think there's so much fear in the media about it. We, it's like there's a whipped up that it's like every child who, you know, any girl who plays with a car is immediately, you know, forced to take puberty blockers. You know, it's it's and and that really interested me that you said that most of what you were doing was talking and listening and therapy. Yeah, I think there's. Uh, a large percentage of the trans and gender diverse population who never come to a, a health service where they're requesting treatment. And, and yet there are some who absolutely desperately need it and we can provide that for them. I think when it comes down to the percentages, I think it's uh, more around um, the number of young people who um, decide not to continue with hormone treatment and so forth. So those numbers are really tiny. So there are... Um, many, many trans people who, who want and need and, and deserve uh, to, to get the healthcare that they need, including hormone treatment. Um, but often the discussion and the media focus on, you know, what if you're making a mistake? What if there is regret? And uh, this is a question, you know, that we think about as clinicians all the time. We, of course, we always worry about, are we doing the right thing and are we doing any harm? And, and we would absolutely take every step we can to minimise the harm. But what's important here to think about too is that not providing care and not providing the hormone treatment they need is doing harm. Mm. And we have hundreds of years of knowing that, um, that not providing care and trying to convince people that they're not really trans, so, which is essentially conversion therapy, we know that that harms people and, and can, can kill them through... through um, uh, increasing their risk of, of death through suicide. So if we know that doing nothing and actively preventing care is harmful and we have the capacity to provide the care that we have all this evidence for to, to say that it helps, then we need to do that. The numbers on, on regret are, are very small and this is where the, the tiny percentages come in, um, where They've done studies looking at thousands and thousands of people, mostly through Europe and the US. Um, and in those that uh, had gone through and even had surgery, 
they said that of the 6,500 people who were studied over um, a, a 40 to 50 year period of time, that only 0.5% of these people, so half a percent had regret. And of that half a percent, half of those didn't regret having the treatment because they changed their gender identity over time, but because they had regret from social reasons. So whether they were rejected by their family, lost their job or couldn't get employment because they were trans, and that was the cause of their regret. So if we've got 99.5% of people who are finding their life is better with treatment. And do you see your patients go on to live joyful uh, whole yeah. lives? And that is exactly why um, I do this work because we see kids thriving in ways that when they first come to us, they couldn't imagine. So just in the last couple of years, I've had two young people who have been school captains. I've had um, a number who have got scholarships either to high school or university and have gone on and been um, advocates for the community and, and have the courage and the confidence to stand up and talk about their experiences and to help others. And it's just an incredibly inspiring um, place for me to be where I feel that um, I've played a very small role in that for them. Um, but the first step is always, I think, um, it comes back to listening to those, the trans and the gender diverse children and really hearing what they're trying to say to us mm -hmm. and then helping them from there. One thing you... Um, one thing you told me backstage that I thought was interesting as well uh, was that puberty blockers, which again are getting a lot of press, you know, there's a lot of fearful press around puberty blockers, but I didn't know that they'd been used for a very long time for cisgender children. That's right. There's a condition called precocious puberty that occurs um, where puberty starts at a, an earlier age than it should. So we're talking about potentially four, five or six-year-olds who may have a um, something uh, wrong with their brain or um, have just sort of for, for no explained reason uh, gone into early puberty. And we use exactly the same medication for the trans kids to block their puberty as we would for these cisgender young people. And they've been using these same drugs. They're called uh, gonadotrophin-releasing hormone analogues for anyone out there who's interested. Um, and uh, they've been using it for probably... 50 years or so, and using it on cisgender children, no one's ever jumped up and down to say they're harmful, we shouldn't use it, there's you know, things that we don't know about it. But as soon as they're used in trans young people, and as soon as it has enabled a huge number of trans young people to thrive and to achieve their potential and to go into the world empowered and enabled, then we feel the resistance and the claim that puberty blockers are harmful when we have ample evidence that they are not. Interesting, very interesting. Interesting. I heard somebody told me that the places there's a lot of fear and concern about trans people and trans children and teens, um, it, the countries where that's inflamed at the moment it correlates with where Murdoch runs the press. Is that true? Well, that's certainly been my experience. <laughs> Have you had an experience with Myrtle? 
Yeah, so I was a target of the Murdoch Press for a two-year period period of time. Excuse me, and um, that started in uh, in August two thousand and nineteen. So I woke up one day, and there was a headline that said uh, something to the effect of um, transgender doctors they're castrating our children and abusing our defenceless young. It's not what you want to see in the morning when um, not that I read the Australian newspaper, mind you. Um, but there's always someone who lets you know that, uh, that you've, you've, you're being um, scrawled across the, the, the paper. And um, in the first 12 months of this two-year campaign, um, the Australian newspaper wrote 45 articles or editorials about me and my work. So they mentioned my surname, Telfer, on 80 occasions and referenced my work 282 times. 100% of which was all negative and critical. Uh, they never mentioned one positive thing that I'd done for a trans person. And um, after this year, which was actually uh, quite frightening, to be honest, to be a target in this way, because it changes your life when you become demonised. And as a paediatrician, being portrayed as someone who was harming and and um, even with the word abuse in these headlines, to be portrayed like that as a paediatrician was actually devastating. And I run a big department uh, with 60 staff and to turn up every day, especially going through COVID as well, trying to run a, gov uh, a big hospital's um, a department and feeling under incredible pressure and, and being worried about what this might mean for us and the care that we provide for these kids, not to mention all the, um, the clinical uh, consultations where the parents would come in and be aware of all of this and the kids too, to, to be honest, that, you know, nothing gets past kids these days and um, they'd be worried about me uh, and because of the... Um, <laughs> And that was such a change in role. It was like, no, please don't ask. I'm here to help you. And um, as a doctor, it was just a really interesting experience. Um, but I, after a year, I thought, I, ca I can't keep going with this situation. Like, what they're publishing is, is not true. It's hurtful. It's demonising trans kids. It's adding to the stigma, the discrimination, it's increasing their harassment and the bullying and abuse they received. And I thought by staying silent, which was the only way I'd been able to cope with it at the, to that point, I thought by staying silent, it's not going to go away. So I took them on. Um, and yeah, thanks. <laughs> I took a week off work and I spent the week uh, with 10-hour days just auditing everything they'd written about me over that 12-month period. I wrote a 42-page complaint to the Australian Press Council. Yeah. And it took 12 months and uh, a horrible process, I have to tell you. It's slow and it's fairly demeaning. Um, but in the end, the press council found that the Australian newspaper had breached all the general principles of the journalistic guidelines. Um, and there were, there were three main ones that they outlined, which I still, I feel really proud of actually taking this on because it was, a, it's a big scary beast taking on the Murdoch press. And, um, but 
what they uh, found was that they'd breached the guidelines around uh, they'd printed inaccurate and misleading false information and they lacked fairness and balance across all the 45 articles and that they'd done harm not just to me but to the trans community. And um, it was, yeah, things changed after that. Um, I'm, I'm really pleased because I think what you're doing in listening and responding responsibly medically where there is going to be self-loathing and self-harm and dysphoria otherwise, you know, then people can go on and thrive. And if we have the medical technology and these kids are then going on from being, you know, miserable and feeling like self-harming or feeling suicidal to be the class captain or to go on to university and live their best lives. I get such a calm feeling from you that you're, you are someone who listens and you are someone who is collected and uh, considered and uh, has the best interests of her patients at heart. So I am glad that they found that the press were slandering you. And I th really hope that you are supported in your work from here on in. Yeah. If I can just say... I think taking on the advocacy has been my, my, the achievement I'm most proud of. And um, I'm proud of the, the hospital I work for, the Royal Children's Hospital, because it wasn't just me that was... I was in the spotlight. I was very much central to it. And they love targeting a woman and relatively young. Sorry. <laughs> um, Spot. Yeah. <laughs> no, a relatively young but educated woman is is often a prime target. And whilst I was in the middle of that, you know, the hospital has um, has stayed strong and is celebrating the work um, that we're doing and supporting these trans kids. And uh, yeah, we're we're very fortunate. Well, I'm glad that they're thriving and that they have somewhere safe. And that that older generation that writes to you and goes, you know, I really wish I'd had this. I'm glad that this generation won't have to write those letters. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do 
and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. It is our seventh birthday show on the 1st of October. Guess where we're going to be? The legendary Hammersmith Apollo. That's right. We are finally live at the Apollo. Confirmed guests include Rachel Paris, Grace Petrie, Sindhu V, Kima Bob, Desiree Birch, Susan McComa, and secret surprise musical guests that we're not allowed to talk about yet. Uh, so get your tickets now. We'll be at Ulster Hall in Belfast on the 14th of October. And you can get tickets for all of these shows at guiltyfeminist.com. To support the podcast and get ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash guiltyfeminist. And now, back to the podcast. Kat Ross. Yes. You're an astrophysicist, a genderqueer astrophysicist. Mm -hmm. Who were your role models growing up? Because I can't imagine you saw very many... Yeah, um, for those... Given, given your main the... role model is The Bachelor. <laughs> <laughs> and I had to wait till bloody 2019 till that yeah. came out. It's, it's a long wait. Uh, for those sort of online, uh, I'm not a very subtle person in my uh, aesthetic. It's very bright. It's very loud. Uh, galaxy overalls. So looking around, there's not usually too many people around that look like me. Uh, and in fact, growing up, my role model was uh, Captain Catherine Janeway of the Star Trek Voyager. Yeah. <laughs> Big fan, absolute badass. Um, but as like, can I get like a cheer from the crowd? Like do my own little science test, is that? Yeah, go for it. All right, it. okay, all right. I mean, ever the scientist, I'll take up any opportunity for an experiment. Um, as like a general cheer, how many people in the audience watch the show The X-Files? <laughs> All right, okay, pretty, pretty good, pretty good. Um, of those people, how many people are currently or have worked in like a science-related field? Okay, okay. So this is the thing, there's actually a study based on the X-Files and it looks into um, an effect called the Scully effect. <laughs> yeah, she's after. got an effect. <laughs> She's got an effect. Science. She, she's got an effect, definitely. And biology. <laughs> so uh, this effect found that uh, people who grew up watching The X-Files were 50% more likely to have worked or be working in a science-related field because of the character of Dana Scully. Absolute badass. Wow. Yeah. Because for pretty much until very recently... All the role models of genderqueer people or women in STEM were fictional and have only ever really been fictional. So we've had to turn to Star Trek, we've had to turn to the X-Files to see any sort of representation and then that representation is usually very stereotypical, very rough, not really something that a broad number of people can relate to and certainly not very encouraging to pursue a career in STEM nine times out of ten. But if you look around, women have and will continue to be incredible scientists. We see through history women have had so many contributions to 
huge advancements in knowledge, but their recognition and the, the contributions they've made are just overlooked and not taught. We only ever teach of the contributions of men because that's what's worthwhile teaching, apparently. That's sarcasm. <laughs> <laughs> so can I ask, how did the Include Her movement start? Yeah, so uh, originally I'm actually from Sydney in New South Wales. Uh, <laughs> oh, <a> Sydney fan! <laughs> Single Sydney person in the audience. <laughs> <a lot. laughs> um, and so I was working the time in physics education research. So we were looking at an incoming physics syllabus in New South Wales and uh, essentially trying to create resources and uh, run workshops to help teachers to teach this new material. Uh, so my job was painstakingly going through every single dot point in this syllabus and working to create worksheets and resources for teachers. Um, and it was in this work that someone, not even myself, someone else pointed out to me, um, they teach of radioactivity, but nowhere does it mention Marie Curie, who what? coined the term <laughs> radioactive. It. She, it's, it, she created the field, Nobel Prize, physics and chemistry, for her work in radioactivity. Nowhere is she mentioned. Uh, and so I thought, all right, I might, I might, do a little more research, dig a little deeper. Uh, and I looked at the entire New South Wales syllabus. And if you count all the mentions of men, there are over 80 men that are mentioned well over 100 times, uh, attributing all the science that they do to that man. There are four women mentioned. Marie Curie is mentioned. She's not in any of the major sciences. So she's not in chemistry and she's not in physics, uh, but she is in sort of an, an extra one in investigating science. Uh, another one is Barbara McClintock, who also won the Nobel Prize for her work in biology. The other two women mentioned, Edna Krabappel and Maggie Simpson. What? The cartoon characters from The Simpsons. There are as many cartoon characters as female scientists. What, is, what was their contribution to science? <laughs> Because it's, it's not even Lisa Simpson, right? Like, it's not even the science one. Uh, yeah, get this. The, the reason they're mentioned is because a male scientist was publishing pseudoscience using them as a pseudonym. Oh, my God. So that is the representation that students currently have That's of female scientists. That's shocking. Yeah. And, I mean, it's, it's kind of obvious in a way, but what's the benefit of having role models that you can relate to in mm. science? Yeah, I mean, it's, it comes down to one really simple thing. You can't be what you can't see. If you are not teaching... <laughs> I mean, you can because you have been. You could, well, only, you could only see Scully and, listen, from... I read your bio out, it doesn't say anywhere that you look for aliens. Um, <laughs> But I'm not allowed to speak of it. Oh, I see. <laughs> it's just, you can be what you can't see. It's just a lot harder. It is. It's it a is. lot harder. And, and it comes you have to imagine yourself yeah. in the picture. Yeah. And you, you have to, and then you have to sort of figure out, well, how am I going to get into this? Mm. So it's just so much easier. And it seems yeah. very unfair. Yeah. Um, do you also find that there are uh, very few black and brown people mentioned? Yes. There is a huge um, push to, to Western science. There's a huge appreciation of Western science and really nothing 
else matters. So even the men that are mentioned, it's, it's all focused on, um, you know, the, the science revolution that we had in like the 1700s. So we love Maxwell and Einstein, let's talk about that science, but nowhere do you talk about science around the rest of the world. It's, it's such a Eurocentric version of what science matters um, and from there, very male-centric as well. Um, Charmaine backstage was talking to us about yarn circles and how mm -hmm. important it is. And she said, what you're doing here really is a yarn circle. Mm. Um, which is a, a, a place, you know, to come and sit uh, where, you know, it, 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 she sits with Indigenous people and tells stories because you tell the story of the trauma and you discuss it and you tell the story of the joy and the hope and, and this is a yarn circle, really. And I think uh, what, you're, what you're doing is looking at what the yarn circles are saying and shifting those up yeah. and creating those. So people like Seva, am I saying your name right? Siva. I, you know, I went to it. I, I corrected myself. I thought, I thought it's Siva. And then I went, no, it mustn't be because I've thought that. And I double corrected myself. I'm so sorry. I've never heard that name before. And I'm trying to remember it. Siva, how is it for you as an 11 year old coming along tonight and seeing Kat on the stage as a sort of young dynamic science professional who's trying to reach you? How does that play for you? Honestly, incredible. Honestly, Oh. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> That's made my night. <laughs> the rest of you I don't care about. <laughs> There's a baby in the audience and if yeah, she ends up fair. as an astrophysicist, we will know why. <laughs> I've assumed a baby's a she. I'm so sorry to just gender your baby. <laughs> Could be a he or a they, we don't know. Um, so is, is there... Anything, Kat, that you came to say that you didn't get to say that you would like to tell this audience? Yeah, I think, so the Include Her movement originally started to correct the curriculum and, and change the specific dot points of what we're teaching our students. Um, that is a bureaucratic process. Um, and so this started over five years ago in my spare time and literally I've, I've basically done an entire PhD and still not yet implemented these changes because the bureaucracy takes that long. Um, but one of the most incredible things to come from this is the number of people that just didn't realise because no one had pointed it out. And then the teachers, the students, the parents taking the initiative themselves to put that effort in and make a change because that can be immediate. And so the Include Our Movement is also now moving into like a, a sort of next generation where we're looking to, to create a school program where we bring examples of diverse scientists and, and diverse role models into the schools for these students and also have a program along with that that works with the teachers to help them develop lesson plans that do incorporate a more diverse range of scientists that they're introducing in their classroom. Is there anything we can do to help Yes, so we have set up a GoFundMe. You can uh, look up the GoFundMe Include Her um, or Include Her Movement. We also have social media where you can find it all there. So on Twitter and Instagram, Include Her underscore STEM. Um, follow us. And it, the, the best thing that you can do and the most immediate thing you can do is, is talk to your own classrooms, uh, you know, whether that's through your teachers, your students, your children, whatever it is. But that's really where we can see the biggest change um, because it, it takes a long time to get governments to make a change. And is there any resource where we can find out about female uh, scientists and uh, diversity within that? 
Absolutely. And, and actually, it's, it's been something that I've noticed even just in the last five years. Um, there's been a huge increase in the number of Wikipedia pages that female scientists have and gender diverse people have. Um, so honestly, you can nowadays just Google an area of science uh, and you know, are there women there? And you'll see an endless number come yeah, up. Yeah, we had an amazing woman on the Guilty Feminist in London a few years ago, and she has these marathon days yes. where they all sit around yeah. uploading onto Wikipedia because yeah. far more men contribute to Wikipedia mm. than women. Mm. And so we've got to start contributing to Wikipedia, start making entries and, and start uh, going to those entries, sharing those entries. Exactly. Um, Can I ask a question? Mm. Yeah. The black hole burps? <laughs> yes, yeah. Can I, can, yes. yeah, can you tell us what that is? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, I, I will just mention, when you say that you don't know what uh, misbehaving baby black hole is, yeah. neither do we, really. <laughs> That's, really? We, don't, we don't know what they're meant to look like, and it turns out some of them weren't even babies to begin with. So there you go. I mean, they are weird. It's, I mean, Pluto's it's not a planet anymore. I don't know what's going on up there. It's all weird. Um, I feel like you're in charge and it's a chaos. <laughs> the, the best thing about astronomy is that we have no idea what we're doing. It's absolute chaos out there. Um, <laughs> the black hole burps. So uh, I combine telescopes across South Africa, Australia and New Zealand. I essentially join them up to act like one giant telescope that was the size as a distance from New Zealand to South Africa. Uh, and using that, I was able to look at these distant galaxies and kind of measure how big they are. They're so teeny tiny and see that in the last, give or take a little bit, 400 years or so, they have had a recent little... Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> just just uh, again for the, for the podcast, that was a little... Yeah. I, I would love to hear more about this. I think we should do like a little follow-up podcast as an extra where just you and Geraldine talk about... The twinkling. Yes, because no, yeah, we'll save it. Sorry. Yeah, no, because I, I want to, I do want to hear more about this. But the Perth Concert Hall is going to ask us to leave quite soon. Oh. So, uh, can I just say an enormous round of applause for Michelle Telfer and Kat Ross? Now it's time for my post-show follow-up interview with Michelle Telfer. I started by asking her to talk a bit more about what she feels is the politicisation of the evidence-based medical care that she provides. Um, look, it's fascinating that the people that work in trans care, the experts who see these kids every day, who understand the distress um, and who have the means to relieve that distress, um, from our perspective, it feels cruel to withhold it. It feels absolutely cruel. When you've got a solution to someone's pain, then you need to provide that solution because not doing so is inhumane and I would say unethical and immoral. You know, when I think about um, being a doctor in this space and uh, people questioning whether we should be using these medications that do, we know, relieve distress, they improve mental health outcomes. You know, if someone came to me and they had sepsis, they had a bacterial infection and I held the antibiotics and didn't give it to them, that would be negligence. And it would be inhumane. Same if someone had physical pain and I had analgesia and I withheld it and said, oh, I'm not sure that you really feel that pain. Again, very cruel. But this is what people are asking us to do with trans kids is to have a solution in our hands and not use it. And I just can't see how that's 
in any way acceptable in our society when we have the evidence that we do that there is benefit here. And the other thing, I guess, that's come into the political discourse is this idea that there are two sides, that there's not consensus on trans healthcare, but there actually is consensus for those who are experts in the field. Like if we look at the the World Professional Association for Trans Health, the Endocrine Society, which is international, the American Academy of Paediatrics, they have all come together with consensus standards of care and treatment guidelines that recommend gender-affirming care, including medication. It's the people that don't work in trans care, the people who don't provide um, assistance to trans kids, um, often people who have never worked or met trans young people, who are opposing trans care. And to think that we need to find a middle ground where everyone agrees is, is kind of absurd in so many ways. Um, and another analogy, because I think the analogies help to under, put things in perspective because trans care is considered so different to other types of care, that if we had to bring governments in um, and bring people in, politicians in, to work out a plan for how we're going to tackle COVID, for example, we wouldn't have the immunologists and the epidemiologists on one side and the anti-vaxxers on another and expect that some, somewhere the middle ground is going to be our best option. We'd work through, um, you know, who has the, the expertise, who has the knowledge, who has the day-to-day experience, and we would recognise that expertise and recognise the science and trust that those people are well-meaning and are doing what's in the best interest of the population. And that's kind of how I see trans care at the moment. People aren't looking at the science. They're not respecting the expert knowledge and they're listening to some loud voices who are bringing in opinion rather than fact. When we talked at the show in Perth, you said 99.5% of people who transition feel that it allows them to live their best life and they don't regret it. And 0.5% do have some regrets. And then of that 0.5%, half of the ones who say they have regrets have regrets because they feel it's cut them off from their families who didn't accept them or it's something to do with societal acceptance. So we're looking at if we could allow that half percent to have more support, we're looking at a quarter of a percent who regret it. I think we're very conscious of the fact that as doctors working in this area that our responsibility is to our patients and making sure that we're not doing any harm. And... We've all taken a Hippocratic Oath that says first do no harm. And so if if someone does have regret and wishes to retransition, it's, it's difficult for everyone and um, we don't want to be in that situation. But we know that there are a small percentage of, of people who go on to have regret. With regards to um, the transition and, and, and retransition, um, whilst there is that small percentage there, we we need to make sure that we're not making decisions on a really small minority because then we deprive the 99.5% uh, of people who are going to benefit from this from having it. 
Um, and you know how I love my analogies. Well, I'll give you another one. Um, so when I think about my surgical colleagues um, and they talk about um, having complication rates of, of say, uh, a hip replacement, for example, that people might come in with pain in their hip, they've got osteoarthritis or whatever reason that, that's causing pain, and they can offer a hip replacement. We know that well over 1% will have a complication from that, whether it's a surgical, um, like a wound infection. They may even get a sepsis and die from the hip replacement. Much worse complication than potentially something uh, uh, for a trans person. However, we don't deny the 99% of people that are going to benefit from We don't stop doing hip replacements because there's a small percentage. Mm. We work on trying to minimise the harm and, and working out ways that we can get that complication rate down to as close to zero as possible. Mm. So when I think about that now, I think about somebody who had depression and then they ended up having an accident. They were in a wheelchair, but they said, if I had to just choose one of those things, I would choose losing my mobility because people can see it and they didn't believe the depression and the pain was so acute and so constant, but I was constantly being told to buck up and it wasn't real. So in terms of the hip replacement analogy, you've got a 14 year old who really needs a hip replacement and everyone would be like, yeah, kind of get it, you know, get it because then the rest of your life, you're going to be more mobile. And if somebody said, but what if you get sepsis? I think people would go, well, we're not in the middle ages. The small, small number of trans adolescents who actually do anything medical are under such acute mental distress. That tiny percentage of the tiny percentage is not reason enough to allow trans teens to self-harm, exclude themselves from school, take their own lives. And that's what we're seeing. And there is a lot of misinformation and disinformation and hysteria whipped up about how many children that if a girl plays with a doll or a boy plays with a car, then we're immediately marshalling them into some kind of transitioning situation when we know there's these huge waiting lists. The last thing any medical person is doing going and recruiting when they've got this huge, 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 huge waiting list and they feel that they can't give the care to those who really need it, who are in deep, deep mental distress. And at the same time, supporting with therapy, conversation, listening, without any medical intervention, many, many, many more. For me, this and your attitude and energy towards it does seem to me to be something where I am more and more interested in listening to medical professionals who every day deal with trans people of any age and less to listen to journalists who are have interviewed one person or two people and made sweeping assumptions that will get lots of clicks. That's where I'm sitting now. I agree with everything you've said there. And um, what we've seen in Australia, which I know has happened in the UK, is that there have been a small number of people who have um, had regret and their stories have been weaponised in the media mm. and the stories have been used to drum up fear to prevent others from being able to access care. 
And I think that that's highly irresponsible for starters because we know that, as you said, uh, young people that can't access care are suffering, suffering deeply. So that's the sepsis story, basically. That's like if every day in the newspaper there was something about this this person got sepsis and if you're going to go to the NHS and have an operation because you too will have sepsis and, you know, and this person died of sepsis. So, you know, what are you doing here? And discouraging people from having operations, which, by the way, given the strain on the NHS at the moment, is it would be no surprise to me, uh, given the articles we've got coming up about cheer up, you enjoy sitting in the dark. Uh, uh, you don't need really need lights. So, <laughs> well, we are genuinely having those articles now, like that's hyperbolic, but like articles about blitz spirit about less food and you know things like that like it is we are coming into a terrible time in in the uk so nothing would surprise me um but that's if if it were the same if every single day in the newspaper there was an article about the worst thing that can happen to you if you have an operation of any sort it would put you off operations you'd think the doctor said actually the best thing for you is to have an operation you would think oh but every time i read about an operation it's about something terrible so my impression now of operations is all operations end up really harming you or killing you or or you're going to have the worst possible time because all you've read about is the worst possible things that can go wrong. And in life, there is a risk to everything. If all you ever read about, if there was no representation of cars except car accidents, you wouldn't want to get in one. No, you wouldn't drive at all. But we see, we get in cars, we see them, we see them on TV. We rarely... And then sometimes we see a car crash in the news. We go, oh, my God, that's awful. I must remember to drive carefully. But we don't only see that representation. So we have to seek out trans communities with a view to listening, podcasts, people on trans, you know, just just try and also take in, if you are somebody who has deep concerns about this because you have read a lot and you've heard a lot, please try and take in some trans voices. Please try and access some media, some just people who are living their best lives, people who've had a great time, people who aren't talking about being trans, people who are just being trans and they're the school captain, you know, they're they're having a wonderful time. Because we are all our brains are so easily seduced into thinking of the worst case scenario. Because, you know, we're we're creatures of survival. I'm not saying you have to change everything you've ever thought because of this interview today. I'm saying can we think more broadly and more empathetically about what it might be like if someone came along to me now and said, you're not a woman, you're a man, I would find that very upsetting. And if everyone was telling me that, I'd find it really, really distressing. And I'm sure it would really affect my mental health and my desire to leave the house. And my trans friends tell me that's what it's like. It's like just someone going, why are you wearing that dress? That's really weird. Um, I'm like, well, I'm a very femme presenting woman. So like, you know, that's my gender identity. It's like, go away. It's my gender identity, my gender expression. I would feel so distressed if I got double takes every time I left the house, if I got double takes every time I got on the bus, if I got microaggressions, macroaggressions, the threat of violence because of my gender expression, my gender identity, I'd feel really, really distressed because I know I'm a woman. And my trans friends tell me it's the same. I'm trying to do the right thing here. And I'm trying to think through these things and allow people to think through these things because I worry very much about people who have questions that are unanswered to them because there's just not a lot of access to information or the information that we get given to us all the time is of one sort. I think it's complicated and we need to be allowed to think it through. And I hope this conversation today has helped some of our listeners 
who have questions and concerns to think it through. This is not the be all and end all. This is the start of a conversation. But please access as many trans voices as you can to get a broader picture. Oh, and Deborah, I've got a, um, a great opportunity that's coming up uh, for people to hear trans voices and to be a part of their experience through a short film that's coming to Netflix on the 22nd of September. Oh, wonderful. And it's a story called The Dream Life of Georgie Stone about the life of a trans young person into adulthood and it's an incredible, incredible story that I would highly recommend. The show that really helped me understand it better and want to advocate better for trans people is a drama called Veneno, which is in Spanish. My friends in America recommended it to me, but it's not available in the UK yet, but we somehow managed to get it. And if you can possibly watch Veneno, it's about a young trans woman and an older trans icon that meant a lot to her. And, you know, they're kind of working together on something, but it really, it really, really, really gave me empathy in terms of what happened to Veneno as a trans woman who'd had top surgery when she got sent to a men's prison. And, you know, there are stuff in it where you go, okay, I get it, I get it, I get it, I get it. Um, This isn't new. You know, it's been regular and part of life for as long as people have been around. But there is language around it that's new. There's visibility around it that's new. There's medicine around it that's new. And that newness needs contemplation, needs understanding, needs a learning period. And uh, I think stories from and by trans people like the Netflix show that you're talking about and Veneno can really, really help with our empathy. Story is everything. When you said there used to be many fewer young people coming forward and now there are many more and the audience applauded and you said, you know, there's lots of older people that write to me and say, oh, my God, I wish this had been there because, you know, I've had a miserable time. And we know from the suicide rates that there's probably lots of people who aren't able to write to you um, because their gender dysphoria was ignored or denied or they felt too ashamed to ever come out. And in parallel with that, there is a concern at the moment, and some of these questions I'm asking you are questions that I think people will have. Um, There's a concern that if some children come forward and then other teens come forward and other teens come forward, there'll be something called social contagion. So, well, my friend at school's going on puberty blockers, so now I want to. And so some people, I think, will take that, well, there used to be this many and now there's this many, as evidence that this is somehow something that's catching on. Um, could you speak to that? To start off, I'd like to say that this issue has become highly politicised and there is so much information out there and so much of that information is misinformation, if not disinformation, so deliberate misinformation to steer an argument in a certain direction. And it's become very polarised. And it's very difficult, I think, for a lot of people to work out what is fact and what is essentially the misinformation that's been put out there in this space. Um, When we look at uh, the number of young people coming forward, what we also know is that there are a, a high number of adults also coming forward and accessing uh, gender-affirming treatment for the first time. 
And the adult uh, clinical services that are currently in existence in Australia are, are experiencing exactly what we're experiencing in the paediatric sector with this increase. And so it's not just children uh, and young people that are, are wanting this care now because they feel that um, it is much more acceptable and safe to come forward. Um, it really is across the age spectrum. With regards to the whole issue of um, whether we can, whether this is um, contagious or, or catching in some way, uh, there are a couple of things to mention about that. So firstly, I'd just like to say that everyone has a gender identity. I have one, you have one, everyone has one. And um, our gender identity is a really deeply held innate sense of who we are as a person. And if you try and think about whether your gender identity could be influenced by someone else, like certainly for me, I think, you know, absolutely not. I feel this way extraordinarily strongly. And I'm sure that that is the case for most people. And we know that for hundreds of years, we tried, um, when I say we, society uh, around has, Western has tried, society, maybe. Western society, well, Western society and others, though, have tried conversion therapy. So for people who were, who were gay, uh, lesbian, bisexual, trans, whatever um, identity was considered unacceptable at that time, many people... Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. People invested in conversion therapy, whether that was through church groups, educational aspects, or, or the mental health system. And what we know is conversion therapy didn't work. No one, even if the person was motivated to be cis and to be heterosexual, that they couldn't because their gender identity or the sexuality was exactly as it was and will stay that way because it is such an innately, deeply held um, part of who they are. So if you can't make someone cis or heterosexual, the argument should be you can't also make someone trans. I mean, you can't talk someone into being trans. And this term, social contagion, really came into the mix following a, a study um, by Lippmann. And, and this was a study that was initially published and um, it's kind of coined the term uh, social contagion. But this study was, um, was flawed from um, a methodological perspective. What the study looked at was a group of parents that were contacted through online groups that weren't supportive of trans young people and they got those parents' views about their um, child and, or adolescent young person um, and then expressed those views, brought them together and, and came to the conclusion that these young people had um, essentially been hanging out with like-minded young people who had gender identity concerns or had identified as transgender diverse and that these parents were perceiving 
the change in their young person to be fairly sudden and as a consequence of them hanging out in these social environments. But with this study, they never interviewed the young people involved. They didn't interview the children or the young person or um, interview parents who were from groups that were supportive of the young people who were part of their family. And if you think about that, um, if you know that your parent isn't going to be supportive and you're trying to work out these issues um, yourself, it's often that the parents are not going to be one of the first people you go to. They're going to be your friends, your, your peers, and people come together. People do. Our society is full of groups who come together where there are uh, like-minded views or a similar way of seeing the world. And so this study kind of put into the world this, um, this kind of term. It caught on. There's a lot of um, anti-trans sentiment that um, was able to carry this. But actually the study was um, the university, Brown University, who published it, actually withdrew it. The conclusions were um, uh, needed to be rewritten um, and the study was essentially um, highly criticised. When I think about the young people that we see at the Royal Children's Hospital where I work, they have to go through a process of um, coming to terms with how they feel, reaching out to their parents, which can often take months or years. They go to their general practitioner, they get a referral, they come into the hospital, and then they sit on a waiting list for way too long, um, in my opinion, but that's been a, you know, a problem of high demand. So by the time they see us, it's often three or four years from the time that they started to feel this way and uh, to start to talk about it with other people. And that's a very long time and not something that would happen if it was just a fad or it was just something that you caught off your friends. When your brain is under 25, it's not fully formed. So I understand that there's been a lot of Murdoch whipped up anxiety and fear mongering about this. But at the same time, I want to check in with you about puberty blockers because some people say they make you sterile. And if you are a teenager and you make that choice to go on them and you slow down your puberty in a way where you're not arresting it so that it can be regular, but you're arresting it so that it stops, is this a situation where you might end up sterile? So puberty blockers don't make you sterile. That is just a fact. Um, if you stop puberty blockers, your endogenous puberty or your natural puberty will progress. And you can have, you know, there's no guarantees for anyone for being able to be fertile, cis, trans, non-binary. There is, there is no guarantee for anyone. But if you start puberty blockers and you stop puberty blockers, you are still able to have children biologically. What's really interesting about the puberty blocker um, hysteria is that um, certainly in Australia, we only start puberty blockers for a small group of trans people um, who may come to us. And I'll give you an example. So I just did an audit of our, um, our numbers from last year. We had 821 referrals last year. Um, and we do have a long waiting list, and so not all of those people will be seen in the, in the near future. But we had um, only 50 young people start puberty blockers within a 12-month period. And what qualifies you to go on puberty blockers? When would you do that? When, what, what, how, what state would that person be in? 
So the only people we start on puberty blockers are those who are in the very early stages of puberty when they are highly distressed about their body changing and they're highly distressed about their body changing in a way um, that uh, is kind of irreversible. So puberty is irreversible in many aspects. So the lowering of the deepening of one's voice, the masculinization of the face and so forth. So there are aspects that happen only during puberty that puberty blockers can prevent from happening. Once someone's gone through a substantial part of puberty, then we don't use puberty blockers because there's no benefit um, or no substantial physical benefit from having those puberty blockers. And we can look at other um, ways of of affirming one's gender identity um, using using other medications. But puberty blockers are only used for a very small percentage. Um, Shell, you've been a phenomenal guest and I really appreciate you giving us this extra time. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on your show, Deborah. It's been a pleasure. And to close the show, please welcome back to the stage, Grace Petrie. Oh, what a bloody night, eh? What an amazing conversation. My goodness me. I, um, I, love, oh, I love doing this show. I love being a part of this show for so many reasons. But uh, in particular, you know, I just stand there in the, in the wings and I just hear these incredible conversations and people like you guys who are just doing such amazing work, you know. Another round of applause, I think, for these guys. <laughs> And I'm going to sing this song uh, in particular because of some things Michelle was was talking about there. Um, You know, obviously, you know, the news out of the Supreme Court in the the past few weeks, um, I feel like I've been saying this uh, at so many of my gigs for for the past so many months or years, I suppose, but I keep coming on stage and saying, it's been a bad week to be a woman. Um, And I'm just waiting for the week that it's a fucking good one, you know, but... Um, but uh, I think that it is important to say, and I wrote this song about this subject, I think it's important to say that, you know, there has been this massive increase in transphobia in the last few years. Um, it's particularly bad in the UK. I don't know how bad it is comparatively in Australia, but it's particularly bad in the UK. And I think, you know, it's always been my view. I'm a queer person. I'm also a woman. And it's always been my view um, because it's been the view of so many people who've come before me and fought these these fights, that you know we are, we only are as protected as we are united. You know we you know that we need to have solidarity between our different communities because otherwise this is what happens. You know there are, there are a lot of people who sort of their feminism was completely distracted by trying to roll back trans rights, and what happened is we took our eye off the ball and we lost abortion access in the USA. I really believe that's what happened, right? Um, and I think that. You know, we have to find a way to try and unite in these fights that affect all of us. You know, like the, the, there is no, there's no LGB liberation without trans liberation. There's no women's liberation without trans liberation, right? I think either, you know, either we are all free or none of us are free. That's always been true and that always will be true. So, so this is a song 
that I, this is an impassioned plea for unity, right? And uh, if you are somebody who needs access to abortion care, whether you share my politics, I'm going to be fighting for you, right? Whether you identify as a woman or not, I'm going to be fighting for you because we have to fight these battles together. We just have to. Um, So this is called Meanwhile in Texas. I'm going to give a quick content warning because I make reference to sexual abuse in this, so if that's an issue for you, then uh, feel free to step outside or something, okay?
All the laws are on the side of just two sexes So one may always be denied And who will protect us If we can't find space to unite As we divide in this debate Another rape survivor flees this state As we divide in this debate As we give space to lies and hate As we divide in this debate Another rape survivor flees this state Meanwhile in Texas Girls are gonna die tonight In Texas Girls are gonna die You have been listening to The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis White, guest co-host Geraldine Hickey, and my very special guests, Michelle Telfer, Catherine Ross, and Charmaine Paper Talk Green, with music from Grace Petrie. The Guilty Feminist theme tune was composed by Mark Hodge and produced by Nick Sheldon, the producer for the Spontaneity Job was Tom Selinski. Thanks to Bjorn, Jody, and Bone Presents, and everyone at the Perth Concert Hall, as well as all of you for listening. For more information about this and other episodes, visit guiltyfeminist.com. stage you, um, that one. You can oh yeah that. you can have that one that's a good idea yes. <laughs> I mean sometimes I really worry about the future and then I meet people like Siva and I don't at all it's like it's gonna be fine by the way your eyelash is coming off oh thank you that's that's a uh, that's it's a feminist act to tell me that because you don't want to leave a sister it's a magnetic one Siva this is but the magnetic... I don't think I put enough of the magnetic eyeliner on. This is the kind of science I do, magnets. I might... Maybe I'll just take them off. Is, is that better? Yeah. I'm, did you say I'm amazing without them? See, this is... We're not, we don't need to worry about the future. I mean, climate change, we probably should worry about. Um, and thank, yeah, thank you to everybody... The Guilty Feminist is provided exclusively from Acast. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.